once you put on a German helmet, uh, your 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 constitution and your whole mindset just changes, and it, it's so amazing. In 20 years, nobody's going to remember who Mike Landry or Otto Landrick is, or Dan Bearden or Chris Pittman. But I think the things that we're developing today is going to have a major impact. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with a special guest who I'm excited to have on. He's somebody who I've wanted to talk to on the program for quite a while. Otto Landrick, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so for people who don't know who you are, please, uh, maybe you could just introduce yourself and let us know how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, like, so 40 years ago, this, uh, this, this year, uh, I, I was, um, ran across a guy, I was in Boy Scouts, I was 14 years old, and, and um, this guy came uh, walking by me and said, hey, are you a Civil War buff? And I said, Yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, um, so am I. And we drink, we dress up in Confederate uniforms and we go uh, fight Yankees. And I said, I looked at him, I said, with, my, with big eyes, I said, you mean there's people like me out there? And he said, yes, there is. <laughs> and so, um, so my first reenactment was uh, February of uh, 1983. And I did Civil War for the 125th and all that kind of stuff. And then um, about 1997, I was uh, getting into, I wanted to get into World War II, and I just didn't know. And so I, um, I started doing some internet searching and found a unit. And, um, and my first event was in December of 97 uh, at uh, Fort Pickett, Virginia. And I tell you what, once you put on a German helmet, uh, your, your, your constitution and your whole mindset just changes. And it, it's, it's uh, so amazing. But um, I tell you what, I, I've, you know, growing my ch- my children in it. Uh, all my boys, I have three boys. All three of them have gotten into reenacting. My oldest son is probably the the best known because um, he still man, he does so many stuff. But um, I tell you, I, I just really loved it. I, I, in fact, I tell you, I, I've, I've always loved the German stuff, but I just hated the Germans so much when I was growing up because I I grew up in Memphis and and I knew the crew of Memphis Bell. My brothers and I, we would be on our, our bikes uh, and we'd you know ride like 10 miles to the Air National Guard base where the Memphis Bell was located at and we would go through the the, uh, the entrance to the base and and I said uh, you know we the, the guard would say uh, can I help you and we we sit there with all our military equipment on and all that kind of stuff in the summer and it's freaking hot because in Memphis and uh, so we'd say no we're going to uh, fly missions on the Memphis Bell and he'd say all right go ahead so we'd go through the gate and we. We fought probably three more more missions on Memphis Bell than anybody else did, but the thing is, is that um, like I hated the Germans because of what we, um, you know, kind of what we grew up with. You know, my uncles fought World War II. Um, my grandfather was a World War One veteran, and so. Uh, but anyway, when I was a, I was a Marine lieutenant, and one of my Marines gave me a book, and he said, "Sir, you need to read this book." And I said, I, "I'm not reading that book," and he said, "No, sir, you got to." And I said, "I ain't reading that Nazi crap." And so uh, he, he kept on pushing me, and so I, I read it, and it was Forgotten Soldier by Guy Sayer. And, man, I'll tell you what, it, it changed how I looked at things, and I saw that um, the Germans were nothing more than just what we were. It's just they were a different country and different time era. But uh, after I got done reading that, I realized that it was just, you know, soldiering is a universal experience, and, and I just really wanted to do it. And that really pushed me into going from reenacting into World War II and then, not long after that, I got into World War One, and I've been doing that for about 23 years. And so uh, it's just a natural progression. And once you get into World War Two German, I think it's just something just just it, it takes a certain type of person, um, and it's just I don't know. I just it's it's a, the love of my life, other than my family and God, you know. But uh, I spend all the time I have, you know, doing that stuff. So that's kind of my background, you know. Um, I tell you, I, I was in, in a unit for about 15 years, um, the unit I got into, um, the great unit, 
but um, it just it just wasn't going that well. And because and, I had kids and all that kind of stuff, I um, I was bringing my kids out, and I was told, look, you can either you know reenact, uh, but you can't bring your kids. And I'm like, I'm a single parent, you know, I gotta I gotta be able to bring my kids. And he said, well, you can't. And so I, I I broke off from them and and created my own unit and brought some guys with me and and uh, you know people say that uh, it, when a unit breaks. Is a bad thing. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, when, when units form, when units split, I think it's a positive thing because there's times where you have different factor factions that are um, fighting over a um, a vision, a, a separate vision, a different vision, something that people want to get out of it. And I think some units really focus on numbers, and numbers are important. But in reality, I think that uh, a shared vision is more important than than numbers. And with a shared vision, I think you can find that uh, there's there's less uh, drama, there's less problems, and people just uh, really work well together. Um, I kind of progressed in the hobby. Uh, I, I was just really a, a company man. I was I just really cared about my unit. I just really enjoyed being with my unit. Um, and uh, about 2013, I was coming off of deployment from, to uh, Afghanistan, and my good buddy uh, Dan Bearden. Uh, asked, he said, "Hey, Mike, I, I really need you to. Um, I really need you as a company commander at Fig." And I said, "You know, I'm not interested. I just go up there. We just don't even go to the battle because it sucks, and and uh, I just we just hang out in the, in the barracks. We that's what we really enjoy." And he says, "I, I get it because I, I was there too." But he, he really talked me into um, um, you know being a company commander. So I got up there and uh, talked. To, I started talking to Judd, uh, Judd uh, Spangler, which is you know, the general at the time, the head general, and and we we started talking about what the the future of the hobby was and the vision for it, you know, and and I saw that one reenactment and uh, the fig in 2014 when I was company commander, I saw what we were doing and I, I was like so amazed because of all the things that I, I hated about reenacting, um, you know, I, I love the people, I love the some of the parts of the tactical, but just there were so many things about the hobby that I just really didn't like. There were so many things that were reenactorisms that I just couldn't stand. And so I spoke to Judd and I spoke to Dan and, um, and we started really working on, you know, like how are we, how are we developing the hobby and how are we developing leadership and how, how we can use for in town gap, uh, the bulge event, as a means to really professionalize the hobby, and it was going phenomenal. In fact, the, the year that we, uh, the, the last year that it happened, I, I had spoken to Judd and I said, "Look, you know, we've got the battle done pretty well, and this is a time where we can really start. You have a great opportunity in Caserna because the Caserna uh, allows us uh, an opportunity to do some living history stuff along with it." And I said, "What we really need is we need, you know, you got Dan Bearden who's got his." Um, rank and, and functions as a combat commander and you had Judd as the head general uh, running everything and then and then you had some sort of level of, of stuff going on in Caserna but I didn't see it as really connected and and uh, being a being a marine officer and um, um, all that stuff I, I, I saw that the Caserna was a was this great opportunity to, to uh, um, do some really fun things uh, in in you know, in, in the, in the Caserna, to be honest. And so, uh, we started working on it and I said, look, we need somebody, but I'm not ready to do it, but, uh, we need to find somebody that would be willing to be like the camp commandant, uh, who, who doesn't go to the field, who works on those things. But obviously, you know, <clears throat> someone lost their finger and, and, um, and so they canceled it. But I think the things that went on very well at, at FIG was that, um, we, we had, I was really impressed with the amount of leadership that we had. Uh, the leadership on the German side was just phenomenal, all up and down, from from all the way up from the Herr General to uh, to the regimental commander to the battalion commanders to the company commanders, and even the group and Führers. And, and I mean, just all up and down. I was just really impressed with the, the amount of leadership and how well we were organized and how quick we were able to adapt and really work together. You know, it didn't matter whether you were SS, Hare, Luftwaffe, uh, we were all able to work really well together. And so when when FIG ended, um, I really w was really bummed about it. And, and you know, I, I went into this, you know, post-FIG 
you know, the, the, the fig is gone, you know, it's, it's horrible. But the interesting thing is, is that what we created at Fig, what they created at Fig, uh, I was a small, small, minor piece of that, but I, I was enough to, I saw enough to see what was going on with it. And <clears throat> I talked to Dan probably about 2019. I said, you know, Dan, we, we were doing so well at Fig, and, and we, were, we were having a positive impact on how we were conducting reenactments. And I, I hate to see that it just walks away. And so we, we, I sat down and we, I kind of designed these things. And, and you know, I'm a Marine veteran. I've spent 29 years in the Marine Corps. I got out as a lieutenant colonel. I did. I, I went to, had four, you know, operational deployments to, uh, two in Iraq, two in Afghanistan. I commanded Marines in combat. Did all kinds of crazy things. Um, but you know, the thing is, is that you know, like, being an historian, and being being a, uh, having that background. I saw the, 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 the larger picture of things. I saw how uh, things are supposed to happen, how you integrate all the warfighting functions, you know, how you, how you do logistics, administration, communications, um, uh, all those things, and how those things are so important for uh, larger events. You know, when you have a, a small event, maybe 50 guys each side, everybody's an infantryman. Everybody is. You know, there's no, you, there's the, the level of, the area that you're operating over, you don't need really communications. You can yell, you can walk, you can run, you can use melders. Um, but when you start getting beyond that, you, you really, the ability to put off a reenactment um, becomes extremely complicated. You know, when you have uh, 300 guys or 400 guys or 1,000 on each side, you know, 1,000 on this side and 1,000 on the other side, uh, you, you know, communications is absolutely essential. So you get into the needs of the hobby compared to what we have. And, and you know, every unit, they focus on the infantry. And, and that's absolutely what we should be doing, um, especially for the small events. You know, but I, I, I see that we're, um, we can take the, the, the template of what we used at, at Fortean Town Gap, and we can apply that across uh, other events. And if, and, you know, it's not just one event or two events, but I see it as how do we take uh, the good things that we were doing at 40 Town Gap and how do we adapt that to um, the hobby and, and events? And so, um, you know, we're in a down, we're in a downside right now where large events are, are pretty few in, in between. You know, there's, there's um, Hazleton and uh, um, there's, you know, Logansport and uh, Indiana, and you have, um, you know, several large-scale events, Atterbury, but for the most part, most of the events are pretty small, so really you're focusing on, um, you know, infantry kind of things, but what I talked to Dan about was, I said, look, man, um, we have an opportunity here, because we have the people who were involved in it, if we can get a lot of the influential people who, in the hobby, and form not a unit, but a kind of like a pool of guys. Uh, not a not a not a unit because uh, units are important, and I don't want to start another unit. And uh, and but we kind of talked about. It, I said, well, if we can get people from all walks of life, you know, every type of unit, SS, Luftwaffe, Hare, we can get them from every different um, region and all that kind of stuff, and put them into this pool of guys that want to do these things. Um, you know, we don't want just everybody, but we want guys who are visionary, who have uh, skills um, that, you know, we, we, we've developed them. Um, they've developed themselves. We can pull them into a pool of guys. And one of the problems with big events is that, you know, if you've got a, a commander in a 1A, and a 1A is an operations officer, um, you can wear a guy out real quick. You know, if you, if you do five events a year and, and you got one, one A who's planning and organizing and, and conducting all these uh, different events, uh, you'll wear them out pretty quick. And so that, the concept was is that we could bring these guys from all across the, the area, uh, the United States. And some, you know, if people want to come from all the world, I guess that's fine too. But, you know, it's, it's not really a regional thing. It's, it's really a, a, a template of things. But if we have this pool of guys, and let's say we do event A, 
and we say, and, and event organizers say, hey, we want to, we'd like to put this thing together, and we would like for y'all to come in and conduct command and control. You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna organize the event, but we want to hand it over to you to um, to do command and control and, and add these warfighting functions such as communications, uh, administration, blah blah blah. So um, the billets in that staff change, the commander changes, you know, depending on who wants to do it, uh, availability, like some guy can't make it, but other guys can. And for that event, we, take, we say, okay, who, these are the billets available, and how, how do you want to organize that? And so we can, you know, so you're not wearing people out. So that was kind of the, the understanding of it, you know, and uh, we didn't want one unit taking over we don't want it to be centered on one person or one unit or or one small faction of guys. We wanted to, to be broad in our in our in looking at that. Um, but most of it was because we just wanted to um, be able to figure out a way to incorporate the warfighting functions such as communications, uh, administration, fuel kitchens. Uh, I know some people are, aren't a big aren't a big fan of fuel kitchens and they think well. Um, the units can take care of themselves, and they can. But, you know, I, I've been in that unit where um, we would have, uh, everybody would bring things, and, um, you know, I'd bring sausages, and some guys else would bring uh, bread and cheese and eggs and all that kind of stuff, and canola and all that kind of stuff, and we would cook things up. But, you know, if, a fuel kitchen is, is designed to uh, be, um, to be able to feed 300 guys. And so, is to be is designed to feed 300 people very efficiently. So, if you can bring a fuel kitchen in, it doesn't cost much to uh, create a uh, an authentic recipe, and then you can feed everybody, and you can use that as part of logistics and, and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, in, including those things in there, uh, get rid of reenactorisms. Um, you know, because I can go out to for an event over a, a I don't know, maybe 24-hour time period, maybe 30-hour 30, 30 time period, and I, I can carry all the food and water and ammunition and everything I, I, I need on me. So, you know, you never really get into those kind of elements. And so how do you, you know, how do you make it difficult and how do you in, incorporate more of this bureaucracy? And I know, Chris, you're a, you're a bureaucracy guy, which I love, you know, because uh, um, adding bureaucracy and paperwork and all that kind of stuff is – is is very important to how they the German operated, but you know for the most part it was it was a, it was something to say okay this is what right looks like if we get the the cream of the crop as far as uh, reenactors and leadership in, in the hobby uh, to be able to put together these uh, and command and control these large events then what you have is you have um, the right guys in the hobby developing what a reenactment is possible, what's possible in a reenactment, you know, um, where not everybody is a, just a, an infantryman, you know. Um, and, and I have a saying that not everything is for everybody, but there's something for everyone. So, for instance, like the field kitchen, um, you know, the guys working in the field kitchen, they're, if they're doing it right, they're, they probably enjoy cooking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they bought a, a field kitchen, but, you know, you need three things in order to for something to work. You need to have the gear, you need to have the people that uh, are interested in doing it, and then you need commanders and staff that know how to implement those things into a scenario. And by having those three things, then those, by then we can start adding functions in there. I can have guys that are interested in it and commanders that want to have it, but if they don't have the, the gear, then it doesn't really make it work. But, you know, let's say I'm in a field kitchen and I'm, I'm cooking and all that kind of stuff, and then... I got a motorcycle melder who's a crab melder who runs up. He's got an Essenbach halter. We put the chow, the food, the Essen in the uh, Essenbach halter, loaded up with uh, water, um, uh, water can, you know, uh, containers and all that kind of stuff. And they send them out there um, to uh, to the troops in the field. Um, the guys in the field they don't see the field kitchen, but they see the guy that comes up in the in the melder, the crab melder. Um, with, the, with the stuff, and they, they pull out their their shears and they eat off of it. They see one element of it, but that guy that's riding that motorcycle, he saw it from from soup to nuts. You know, he's he saw it from the from the field kitchen all the way 
in, in what he does and in all the way through. And so each person had an element of, of seeing it, but, but it was different. There, each, each person's experience was, was different. So anyway, it was, it, the whole concept of, so we, we formed the uh, Dust Regiment back then, um, and it's actually starting to really uh, take off. It, it took me, it took us a while to, for it to, to work, but um, we're really starting to get a, a good uh, following of people that are interested in, in doing those things. Um, and one more thing about the DOS Regiment, you know, really it's developing a framework for reenacting events. It's not just for us who are in the DOS Regiment, but it's like we're trying to create the opportunity for people to see, okay, this is what right looks like, right? And and um, we're, we're pulling out all of the reenactors as we possibly can. Can you ever get rid of them? No, you can't. But I think that you can try really hard to find you know someone who's interested in a certain aspect. Like you're you're all about the administrative aspects of it, which I absolutely love. And some of the things we're we're doing with administration, and we can talk about in another podcast. But um, you know we're Adding those things to an event is actually tremendous to, in my mind. And um, adding complexity adds to the realism. Adding realism to it provides for the, a better experience, if that makes sense. I totally agree. Um, you know, thinking back to, oh, just saying, like, Thinking back to those uh, Fort Indian Town Gap events, the level of organization that that event achieved, the the layers of leadership that existed, the various um, people at different levels responsible for uh, one aspect or another, it was very complex. It did take time to assemble that, but um, by the time the event finally uh, was canceled forever. I think after 2018, the the level of organization on the the German side, at least, was something that I was really proud of, and that I thought was kind of unique in the hobby at that time. And I I certainly love the idea to build off of that a little bit to take that kind of spirit and some of the lessons learned by some of the same people and extend that to other events that are happening today. I think it's great. Yeah, and I tell you what, um, that's the first time I ever met you and. And I was just floored by, by what y'all were doing. It was so cool. I mean, like to walk in there and, and get their uh, officer, um, you know, officer pass. And I, I forget the German name for it. But anyway, it, you know, like and if I had something wrong with my soul book, you know. And I think that, you know, when you really get into that, you know, um, John Allison and I, he's my spice. Um, we talk about this at times. It's like, you know, um, most people carry a soul book. But we really don't use it to what it's supposed to be, right? We have we have an Erkunings mark on us, and and but you know a soul book is so important because that in order to fill that thing out, you have to come up with a storyline on who you are, and that persona, that persona is so important in how you reenact. It gives you that that psyche psychological aspect of I'm not just you know I'm not Mike Landry, I'm Otto Landrick, you know. Uh, and Otto Landrick has a, a past and a future, and he's got a family, and he's got all these things. He he comes from a certain area, and he's he's had these experiences, he's has these awards. And and when I can pull out somebody's soul book, and I can go to um, where his gear is at, you know, when his weapons is, and I can pull out, I can pull his Zeitengewehr off of his body and check the serial number on the soul book. There's a level of coolness that just goes down your spine. It's like man. This is so interconnected. It is so freaking cool. And I think you do that. And, and I, I was, it was, it blew me away when I saw that at FIG. And I said, all right, I got to incorporate, I got to find ways to incorporate these things into what I do, you know? Absolutely. Um, I think it's really cool that, it, you know, at the stage where you've developed this thing to now, you're being uh, invited by event organizers to offer, um, command aspects and and you know to provide training or to provide input onto other aspects of the event to make it more immersive um 
because traditionally that that can be a real challenge whether events choose to have one person who just is the commander of the side at that event every year which is you know work sometimes other times might be challenging or then having the commander of the largest unit at the event do the uh, command for the whole the whole German side say at the event that that kind of takes away um, that person's ability to be in charge of their own people at the event. We were talking about this a little bit before we hit the record button today. Um, but I know that's something that you experienced where, um, you know, you weren't able to be in charge of your own guys at some events that your unit was doing because you were being tasked with uh, event level stuff and that, that that wasn't an ideal situation for you. Yeah. In fact, uh, I can tell you that uh, when I started, when I first became a company commander at 40 in Time Gap, I had a very thriving unit, and um, we showed up, and, and I became a company commander. So I had, I think I had like seven or eight units below me uh, all here. And then my son, um, who uh, he got pulled up to be the, uh, the adjutant for the regimental commander. And so both of our unit leaders, you know, the guy I would have turned it over to was pulled up also. And so I handed it over to another one of my sons, and he did a good job. But, you know, that's, that's not what he was interested in. You know, he just wanted to be a, a, a Lanzer, you know. Um, so what happened was, you know, you, when you're a unit commander and you are and you get pulled up to be a higher level commander, and um, you, you have to choose. You have to choose between am I going to – focus on leading my unit or am I going to focus on leading the comp group or the company or the battalion that I have? And, and you can only choose one because, you know, believe me, I've, I've done stuff in combat. You, you just, there's, it's hard. It's really hard. You can only focus on one unit. Um, and, uh, in, in it, you can do it, but it's not going to do well. So I, I really believe that it's, it's important for, um, unit commanders to commander unit. Now, if a unit commander gets pulled up to be a, um, you know, a higher level leader or overall German commander or something like that, he can work it as long as he has somebody he can hand his unit off to so that he can focus on those, those, the broader um, aspects of what he's supposed to do. But it is difficult. And I'll tell you, I ran my, my unit into the ground uh, supporting events and, you know, it, it was it was a it was worthwhile though. I mean, it, it ran its course. The, the unit was there for what it was, and it was one of the reasons why I I, uh, I joined 134 because uh, we were everything we were doing we were doing with 134, and Dan Bearden kept beating me up to join his, his unit, and I kept saying no. <laughs> but um, there was a point, and I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll uh, I'll give up my unit. It was still, we still had a, a good unit, but I, I said, I'll give up my unit to start Das Regiment. If you'll pull back from our 134, excuse me, uh, if you'll pull back from 134 in order to uh, focus on this. And he said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hand off command uh, to 134, um, but we'll, uh, you know, we're still part of the, that unit. But, but the thing is, is that we have, we've developed younger leaders to, to run that so so we can focus on things that we're um, trying to do with the hobby right and and really it's for us we're getting older and we're at that point where okay we have a, a set bunch of skills uh, we kind of know the hobby we've been doing it for so long uh, we, we understand the hobby we we have the skills we can um, do things um, and and this is the opportunity for us at this time and I'll tell you we're not the only one I mean you know, you talk to Scott Shoup. I, I, I'm a very good friend of Scott Shoup, and, um, and we coordinate and do things a lot together. I mean, we're, uh, we're co-commanders at, at Atterbury together, and uh, the things we're trying to do, he's trying to do, and we're not competing against each other. We're just, you know, we, we learn something, we hand it off to them, they learn something, we hand it off to us. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's the value of, of creating a framework of how we do events so that it doesn't matter who it is. I hope that whatever framework we come up with as as a as a hobby, and I'm not talking about just me and Das Regiment. I'm talking about creating a framework by which other people can look at and say, "Oh, yeah, that works. Let's implement that in our area too." And what we're doing. I mean, 
to be honest, I mean, you know, um, there's no way for anyone to completely control the, the hobby. No one should. Uh, but I think that, that through working together with other people and other leaders and people who are running events and putting off events and commanding events, you know, when you, when you pull up to that level and, and you're really looking at it from, uh, you know, I got a unit, but I don't care. You know, I'm not interested in my unit or, or one unit or another unit. You know, we got unit commanders for that. But how do we integrate those things? How do we build those events so that those units can come in and experience the very best experience they can? I mean, that really is, to me, the question. That's the dilemma that we have to figure out right now is that, you know, how do we how do we de develop and design events Large events, because because small events are all infantry anyway. It's, it's, it's you know zoog and lower, but how do you integrate these things? How do you get guys that that have communications capabilities and all these communication radios and wire and all that kind of stuff? But they're they're just sitting over there and creating really nice living history displays. Um, but that's great. But it might be a little bit of fun, but it it ain't the, it ain't the real deal. You know, and so the, the, the key is how do I get these things out there? How do I get these people who are getting older like me and you? How do we get these people that don't that can't don't want to go out and just pull triggers and, and go pow pow? You know, how do we keep them in the hobby? Because in the hobby, you need two different types of people. You need old people because they have all the resources and I have all the, the, the toys and you need young people to employ those things, you know. And, and a mixture of the two, you can't have one without the other. You know, uh, young people bring a level of excitement and new ideas and different ways of thinking of things. And old people can have experience and, and, and toys. And, and matching those two together is what makes things capable. But, you know, I, I hate to see anybody uh, say that, well, I'm just getting too old for this stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell all my stuff and get out of the hobby. I'm like, no, no. We need you. We really do need you. We have a capability for you. But I need you. To, what I need from those people is, hey, what what is that thing that if you're not going to be an infantryman anymore, and I get that. But if you're, let's say you're a vehicle owner, you know, or you're, you know, you have a, you know, you're like Doug Strong and you you you're a cobbler, you know, and you're good with your hands, or you're like Dave Stone, like Steiner, who's good at everything. To be honest, I mean, if, if I was if I had a lot of money, I'd just hire Dave Stone to just work for me and just do his little thing and make awesome things, you know. But um, how do you keep those people interested in the hobby and how do you employ them? And I think that's where we're at with Das Regiment. It's like, okay, look, you have a you have a thing that you want to do. You have a, this idea, and um, I'm going to help you get your geek on. I'm going to get you. I want you to go full geek. And once you have that, once you develop that concept, you know, the, then. I will think I will find a way to create a scenario by which we use you. And I'll tell you what, at Logosport at Kursk, we we did that and it was amazing some of the stuff we were doing, like ammo resupply. Um, you know, it, it was amazing. Um, uh, checking in people that, you know, like once, once we de deployed to the field, um, anybody who came on and registered, uh, or I'm sorry, checked in to the event after we had deployed the field, the Spies grabbed them, went through their paperwork, checked them out, and then he held them, and then we sent them forward as replacements, as if they got off the the, uh, the train coming in from Germany, you know. So, I mean, these things are really cool concepts, and, and when you have a tross and the guys in that tross that, that provide a real capability, then, then you can add those things into it, and it's just not one-dimensional. Because I think when we started reenacting, it was pretty one-dimensional, you know. I think we're getting into, like... Um, I think we're going from like reenacting 101 and reenacting 200 using college terms. I mean, I want to get to doctor level reenacting. And, and how do we get there? And it's not just me coming up with this stuff. This is uh, across the board, people like you, people like Doug Strong, people like John Allison, people like, you know, um, um, all these people that are just so instrumental in the hobby that um, are focused on these things. So. I'm, I'm excited because I think it's, it's, it's an incredible time to be in a hobby. It's interesting to hear you, you know, articulate this vision um, for the hobby. It's 
I think uh, sometimes I can feel a little bit discouraged about um, sort of hobby-wide concepts. I feel like sometimes um, sometimes I can have negative feelings, like I think that people are just reinventing the wheel or um, that uh, previous levels of of achievement in one area or another maybe could be difficult to uh, recapture in the future. Um, but I, I really like that you have um, thought about this, come up with a sort of a vision, and then actually found people that you could put into place uh, to partner with sort of and help to achieve this. Um, and look, ultimately, we could probably debate the extent to which this can really affect the hobby as a whole. There will always be competing outlooks on reenacting. There will always be events that use totally different models and stuff. Um, but certainly, you know, you mentioned the Kursk event that happened at Logansport, Indiana recently. All of the feedback that I saw from all of the participants at that event was tremendously positive. And a lot of people said that they had never uh, reenacted like that before in their lives. So at least for, for those people, for people who are able to attend these events and be a part of it, um, it certainly seems like it's having an impact on their enjoyment level. And, and I commend you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I think that the future of the hobby really boils down to in large events, right? The large events is diversification of impressions because we can't, you can't command and control if you can't command, you know, you can't conduct a battle if you have command and control abilities. You can't um, conduct operations over large areas like we did at Atterbury last year um, if you don't have logistics, you know. Um, you have to have uh, administrative um, aspects and, and everything. Rather than fairy dusting it, we're trying to figure out ways that we can incorporate those things. And like I said, I mean, it's not there's not everything is for everyone. You know, if you're if you're a Lancer and all you want to do is go kill armies, <laughs> I need you. You know, we all need you. You know, you are the foundation of the hobby. With that 10% of guys that that are beyond that, who have grown out of that, you know, uh, who who aren't really excited about that stuff anymore. You know, we, we have places and, and needs for those people. So I think that, that understanding what people have an, an interest in, you know, um, you know, a lot of people have interest in, in things and they, they, they collect them and they, they create great living history um, displays for them at, at uh, public events. But, I'm, I'm not really interested in public displays, you know. I'm not look really interested in those things. I'm, I'm trying to look at it and say, how is it that we can take what you're interested in and how can we use those in battle events, you know. Because, you know, um, someone was talking about, you know, the fact that, that they uh, put together this battalion-level um, uh, communications um, this, you know, thing and uh, training event. And all that kind of stuff. It was just awesome. I guess... You know, it's great, but are you using it in a way that they used it? Are you using it to support the decision-making of a commander? You know, are you just, are you using that in a means to use it at an event where those people can, uh, the commanders can receive reports, make decisions, issue orders, and then command and control uh, large, large uh, groups of people? Um I'm not downplaying it at all. I think it's amazing. And I think that from what they're doing is going to be tremendous towards, towards the end. But the thing is, is that, okay, if, if all you're going to do is, is store displays, okay, that's awesome. That's awesome for the public. But my challenge is how do we take that and, and roll it into what we do as reenactors? And how do we uh, make that, those battles, those battle events, uh, three-dimensional, you know, um, so, you know, it's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge for everybody. I mean, it's not for just the people who are interested. It's like, okay, and I'll tell you what now. I mean, like when some of the uh, infantrymen that were there, they were saying the fact that I had Andrick, uh, you know, Andrick, we need to uh, lay some wire across the road, you know, from one hulk courtier to the other one, you know. And uh, so Andrick got my, my gaffs on, my climbing gaffs and all that kind of stuff, and he um, got there and, and – uh, climbed a pole and, and people, and it was, it was amazing because he did it at the same time that we were 
actually just waiting to launch our assault. And everybody was looking at it like, man, that was one of the coolest parts of that whole event. And they weren't even engaged in it, right? It was just so cool, you know. Um, but I think diversification of impressions is, is probably the, the future of the hobby and how we really take the hobby into those, those, that next level. And, and I'll tell you, the, the things that you do are so important because, like, you have created a demand for people with soul booths and paperwork and administrative things. And, and that is, that's been, that's, whether you know it or not, and I'm sure you understand the, the impact it's having on it, but, but the fact is, is that, you know, you're, you're a paperwork guy and, and what you're developing may seem like it's not gotten no, going nowhere, but, but it, it, it's not, it, it's really going a long way because what it's doing is generating interest. And I've created two two groups on Facebook. One of them is Practical Pioneering for Reenactors, and the other one is Practical Communications for Reenactors. And and it's really, you know, I'm not a pioneer. I'm not a communicator. You know, I mean, in the Marine Corps, I was an artillery officer, comm officers. I mean, they were like the most hated people in the world because if if we didn't know who they were, they were doing their job. And if I knew who you were, you're not doing your job. So it's not it's a it's <laughs> It's, a, it's not a very fun job to have in real life. But the fact is, is that, like, I, I understand how to employ it. I just don't know how to put it all together. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how to do all that stuff. I'm trying to generate interest in these um, stovepiped areas. You know, I don't want to get into Pioneer. I don't want to know how to do all that stuff. I just want to be able to employ it, you know. And so I need, not I, we, we as a hobby, need to figure get people that are interested in those kind of things communications wire radio um, um, field kitchens you know uh, administration we need people to look in those things and say okay um, I'm interested in this I'm, I'm willing to go a thousand miles deep kind of like a doctorate right a doctorate degree is is very very small in interest but it goes a thousand miles deep I want you to go into this concept and I want you to go a thousand miles deep and once you figure all these things out then then we I we can take it and say okay you have a capability that I can now use and so it's up to me to figure out how to do those things but if you don't ever figure these things out then then I can't use it but I'm not gonna sit there and figure it out myself you know I don't have time I don't have energy I don't have know-how I can't read that many books and I can't research that enough. But the people who are interested in it, like you, in administration, when you'll figure out what forms we're using and what, you know, we go out there and do a, a, a um, uh, an award ceremony after an event, you know, because we want to recognize people who are out there, you know. Um, having having a trough that, 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 that's uh, Shrivers that can sit down and type those documents so we can hand them out. You know, it's, it, it adds such a great level of of um depth to what we're doing right yeah i mean for me um i loved portraying an infantryman for many years but after uh 10 years of doing that or something there were some aspects of that that were starting to sort of get a little tired and uh having being able to focus on other aspects of the reality of World War II and to explore things that are different, that require a different skill set, different research, um, that that has a way of keeping reenacting fresh and preventing burnout, you know? So um, having opportunities for people to take on different roles at events certainly um, is one way to, I think, help maintain interest and, and help retain people really which is something that um i think we we might uh, overlook sometimes in reenactment you know something that's not really talked about very much is the turnover rate you know and when when people leave and why they leave um but i definitely think that that having diverse impressions at diverse events is probably um the best way to to keep people around yeah i agree one, one more thing before we, we punch off of here. I, I did want to just tie this all together. You know, we have uh, Das Regiment. Um, when I talked to Dan, I said, look, we need a, we need a, a formal um, headquarters element with staff in order to, 
you know, develop that framework of what reenacting should look like, you know, to, to show people what right looks like. And then the second part of that thing um, is how do you feed it? How do you develop it? You know, once you show people what right looks like, how do you develop the next bunch of people that can come in and, and take over the spots? Because, you know, I'm 55 years old. I, I mean, I'm not going to, I might have five more years left. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe 10, but, you know, to be honest, I mean, I want to be completely out of this stuff before I, I, I'm beyond the point where I'm, I'm just not, it's no longer makes sense for me to be in this, you know. Um, so what we created also was a Creek Shula. And, and we won't go into what the Creek Shula, you know, a lot of discussion on that. We can talk about that in another podcast. But, you know, the, the, the regiment um, provides the means by which we, we conduct those things. But we need a pipeline in how we develop the next generation of leaders with skills, leadership, uh, development, and all the things that we need as a hobby in order to um, show people, you know, develop the next people, right? Because you need a, a pipeline of, of constant improvements of, of the, 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 the things that make us good, right? And that's the people, right? You have to invest in your people. Um, and I know many, many units, um, do a, a really good job of training their guys. Um, but I think the, the, the value of the Creek Shula is, uh, development of leadership, uh, training of specific, uh, skills. And then the good thing about the training is, is that you're standardizing training, right? Um, and, and you need standardized training and you need to be able to bring, uh, best practices into one location um, and of course, when I say, you know, training, I, I will, I want to say this, um, I'm not a trainer. I was never, other than training recruits at Paris Island, I, I wasn't a trainer, you know? And so, um, the whole concept is, is the, the Creek Shield is based upon a cadre, uh, that runs the school, but the instructors are the best across, they're the subject matter experts in any one subject across the hobby you know so we're trying to look to see who is the best guy at this you know uh, communications or field kitchen or uh, radios wh whatever it is you know machine gunning you know uh, machine gunners I, we want to grab the guys that are the best in the hobby who've done the research and have, have, have uh, determined these things uh, and then and then the thing is and i've heard some people say well it's not a. It's not really what the Germans did. Okay. Well, yeah, I get it. Um, it's not going to be a German school. It's not intended to be a German school. It's not intended to be a reenactment of a German school. What it is is it has to have a, a name. So Kriegsschule. But but the idea is, you know, I'm not going to teach you how to be a German machine gunner. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, this is the aspects, the general aspects of of um, machine gunning and being a machine gunner. And then, but more importantly, how do we, how do we adapt this to reenacting? What is, what's the, so what, when it comes to reenacting and how do we take what they did and what their, um, their doctrine and training and all the things that they did and their, their tactics, techniques and procedures were and not replicate it fully, but replicate it as much as we possibly can in the reenacting environment. So, it's again, it's not a German school, but is how do we adapt those things to reenacting? So regiment, Kriegsschule, working together, um, those those things. And I'd love to talk about those things more in depth at, at, at different times. But I'll tell you what, I just appreciate the opportunity for y'all to uh, reach out to me, and I, I'm I'm just so proud and, and thankful for the opportunity to to uh, share these uh, concepts with the hobby and. And, um, it's, you know, it's not what I have. And one of the things I told Dan Beard and, and the other people, Judd, Judd Spangler, I said, look, you know, in 20 years, nobody's going to remember who Mike Landry or Otto Landry is or Dan Beard or Chris Pittman. No one's going to remember our names. It's just the fact of, of life, you know. But I think the things that we're creating today can have major impacts on how we operate in the future. And so the guys who are going to fall in on the things that we're developing, some of them might not, might not even be alive today, but the things that we're developing today is going to have a major impact in that and, and be better than what we, we came in on, you know, either, either you know, 25 years ago or 40 years ago or 
or you know some people are even in it longer but you know um, we've, we've developed quite a ways and, and I think we're in a transitional period in, in reenacting and I think that you know um, it's a good time to be a reenactor it's a good time we can we have so much that we, we're working on and we're really developing some really great concepts right now so thank you Chris I appreciate it brother yeah, it it's just it was it's one of those events where you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. We do have so much camaraderie in this uh, this hobby of ours, this reenacting, and I think it's important for us to realize that because we're here to support each other. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Otto, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really great talking to you, and I do hope that we can talk more in the future because I think we we barely even scratched the surface yeah, of uh, some of the stuff that you've been working on that I want to get into. So, <laughs> so there will be a next time for awesome. sure. Thank you. So to the Patreon supporters, really appreciate you guys. Wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to keep doing the podcast. And uh, to Mike and everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air. And you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactors Corner.